Hey everyone, welcome to the Footprint Futures podcast, where the founders of Footprint, Danny Schultz, and myself, Sebastian Gia, interviewing leading entrepreneurs and sustainability innovators. In this episode, we want to learn from these inspiring change makers in the climate tech space on why and how to accelerate the world towards a sustainable future. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Wiener Lotzmann, an international recognized thought leader as well as advisor that works with governments, businesses, and non-governmental sectors around the world on the intersection of climate and environmental engagement and behavior change. We actually learn what unites sustainability and psychology, learn from her strategies and her approaches, and also talk about how innovation can happen in the space. Enjoy. All right, Renee, thank you so much for taking the time for this episode today. We are super happy and really looking forward to the uh, conversation, uh, really talking about behavior and psychology around sustainability. I think it would be really great for the beginning if you could give the audience a little bit of a context around your journey, giving a little bit of introduction about yourself and uh, what you have done in the past. Okay. Hi, thank you. Good to be with you all. So my journey started really when I was a college student uh, in the late 1980s, and I was a psychology major, and I was very focused as a young person that I was going to become a psychologist. And basically what happened is I happened to enroll in an environmental studies course, one of these big introductory courses, and the impact that that had on me was that I quickly realized that we weren't really addressing and talking about the psychological dimensions of our environmental and climate crises. So I went through my own personal you know, experience of feeling overwhelmed, feeling powerless, feeling despair, feeling confused, also feeling angry towards uh, humanity, um, You know, it, it was a whole combination of things, you know, especially as a young person taking various classes and sort of piecing together a story about how we as humans have been living on the planet and being presented in a very stark way with the implications of that. So I was sort of going between my environmental studies and my psychology classes and also policy classes and, you know, all kinds of classes. And really wanting to connect the dots between how do we leverage psychology in an effective way that actually advances all of the work being done on the forefront of climate and environmental change. So that was, you know, a good 30 years ago. And I really did set my intention to following that thread ever since. So it's taken me on a lot of different pathways. So You know, I, I'm a writer and I'm a communicator. I would say almost first, like that feels like my core identity in a lot of ways. So naturally I gravitated towards uh, environmental communication and I did my master's degree in environmental communication and did a media analysis of how, you know, complex issues were being reported on and what that tells us about the psychology and the emotional relationship people have with the issues. And then I went on from the communications focus into how can organizations actually use this work? So I moved into more of an applied focus. 
and started actively working with NGO organizations, with government, with some private sector. And actually in 2000, I worked with a startup in San Francisco. Um, 90, yeah, it was 2000, right before the, the dot-com bust. I was working during the boom with a green startup that was funded by, this is a long tangent, but I'm talking to you knowing that you're a startup. You know, I'm real remembering now about that time when uh, it was a very dynamic time and, and people were really then trying to figure out how to mainstream green, how to engage with mainstream audiences. That was really quite an important time in the history of this work of around 2000, late 90s and 2000s. And then from there, I ended up realizing that I needed to be of most value as a partner with organizations. I needed to have more in-depth knowledge and expertise as a researcher in the field. So I then chose to pursue a doctoral degree. And I, I think that I always knew on some level that I was pursuing doctoral work so that I could actually be a practitioner versus a career academic. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't really, to me, where, where, where the action is personally is where we take the academic insights and we take all the research and we translate that. And to me, that's innovation. You know, that's the innovative aspect of the work that you're doing, that I'm doing, that we're doing. And so since that time, uh, especially following my PhD, I have really, I had one year as a postdoctoral or a senior research fellow at Portland State University, one year, and then I, I left and said, you know, thought I'm going to now focus really on full-time application. And so in addition to that, I've been you know, hired to teach and design courses and workshops and trainings so there's that happening, but I'm very interested in partnering and working with, you know, people who are on the ground trying to create new innovation, new impact strategies, new ways of being. And fast forward to right now, what, what I spend most of my time doing right now is working with a whole variety of organizations from multinational tech who are working on integrating sustainability within their organization to startups, to foundations. And then, you know, a couple of years ago, I received a grant from the KR Foundation in Denmark who fund organizations all around the world. And they funded me to create a resource hub that takes a lot of this work and, and translate that into tools for organizations in its very early days. It's Project Inside Out. And we just launched really not that long ago, public, more publicly, and now we're moving into a phase two. And that work is also, you know, very much about prototyping and piloting and working with organizations to see how, you know, how effective and useful are these tools? And if not, how, how can we make them better? Yeah, wow. This is amazing. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. I really uh, appreciate um, that that overview. Yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing the, the overview of your journey. Really impressive uh, journey, of course. I think that would be really interesting for the audience would be to understand 
how is your, because you started out many years ago, how does the whole industry and the whole awareness around sustainability and this link between psychology and uh, sustainability um, change for you towards all the years? Well, that's a good question. I started out very, very interested in the emotional dimensions of climate and environmental issues and feeling that a lot of people working in the space of solutions were not adequately acknowledging the very complicated emotional and psychological relationship that we have with these issues and the impact that learning about my footprint, learning about emissions, that, that's actually so much more psychologically complicated than any of us really give acknowledgement to. So that's just That's always been very interesting for me is what does it really mean to be a human being right now where you start to realize that so much about how we live is actually attached to very damaging impact on the planet. So I could look around the room I'm in in the kitchen and I can look at virtually everything from this glass to the computer to the moleskin notebook to the pen. And I can start to see the connection with practices that go against my values and are distressing. So what does that bring up for us? So that's always been my interest, but your question, what have I seen over the years? And there's actually a very clear evolution that's been happening over the number of years, which I've written about and, and actually on Project Inside Out, there's a quadrant of primary ways of thinking about solving these problems that is actually what it is, is a, it's a map of the landscape of the field. And so about 20 years ago, the emphasis was really on uh, behavior science and, you know, psychologists who study risk and decision-making, they were the first psychologists to be enlisted to partner with, for example, the Department of Energy in the States and other parts of the world. So. It started with a very cognitive focus on how do we make decisions, how do we measure risk, and a very behavioral science orientation. And then we also started to see behavioral economics get in the mix where there was an emphasis on nudging, on incentivization, on motivation, on levers and drivers. And so that language is directly taken from behavioral economics. So that started to really influence the field. Then what we saw happening was an interest and attention in language and messaging and the words we use and the ways that we frame climate engagement through the lens of values. And that work was really you know, emphasized by, you know, most of my references are either British or American, not to say there is an amazing work happening in other parts of the world and in Europe, but you know what I'm aware of is the Yale Six America, which is talks about those six Americas. You know, you've got a lot of research coming out where there's an emphasis on how do we talk about climate change in terms of our values. And so that was a big focus, I would say, you know, especially in the early 2000s. Then we started to see more recently, I would say within the past 10 years, more interest from the design thinking sector and the innovation sector, 
where you start to see terminology like social impact and social enterprise and Ashoka and climate kick. And it's a direct influence from the innovation sector. We've got to solve these problems. We've got to use solutions. You know, drawdown is a good example of that. And so that's sort of this, you know, you see behavioral science nudging, then messaging and framing, design thinking and systems thinking. And then the fourth part of the quadrant where I'm in right now and is the leading edge, in my view, is tying it all together and bringing in the additional emphasis on emotion and affect. So feeling and, you know, what, what's going on for people at a less conscious level. And I think that's the missing piece. And I think that that missing piece can actually help unlock all of the other parts of the ways that we've been thinking about it. So when I look at the the field itself, I see a very clear evolution in how we're thinking about solving these issues. Right now, the solutions focus is huge and the solution and optimism and hope focus is huge. And I see that as, you know, an exciting development and it's limited because if we only focus on solutions, if we only focus on optimism, we're not actually going, we're not addressing what gets in the way of change, which is ambivalence and anxiety and people feeling overwhelmed and all that stuff that's more complicated to deal with. So right now, I think what we're talking about is what is a more emotionally intelligent approach And I think that that's the question that any one of us should be asking in the work we do. How is what I'm doing emotionally intelligent? And if you don't know what it means to be emotionally intelligent, then you go and you look at that up and you do research and you train yourself in emotional intelligence, just like you would train yourself in climate policy and climate energy tech. You would look at how do I make my work truly emotionally intelligent? in order to get the action and the change we need quickly. Regarding that, you said there is a huge optimism now surrounding that that whole area. Do you feel, as certain experts are saying that also, do you feel there is a certain contradiction between sustainable behavior and our basic psychology? Well, I think that it's essential that we recognize that humans are contradictory beings. And I think that we need to understand much more about the relationship that we have between our aspirations and our values and our actual practices. And there's a lot that we currently know about the fact that humans can very easily split off parts of themselves that we can disconnect from our values, we can repress or push down what really matters to us. If we feel helpless, if we feel overwhelmed, you know, I'm just not going to think about it. I'm going to push it away is one. Then two is the fact that we're living in, obviously not all of us, we, we don't determine our own, you know, I have to walk outside the door. I didn't, you know, I have to get in the car and drive to the store. So we're all embedded in systems that are still, we still have to function in. And a lot of people feel really stuck in a, what I call it, the double bind between what I want to do and what I feel like I can do. 
And that double bind is a very painful place to be. I can't just snap my fingers and suddenly have everything be in alignment and sustainable. So I have to make these trade-offs and these choices all the time. And that can be really taxing and really exhausting for people. So my work is about really emphasizing that people actually do have deep fundamental values and aspirations. And our job is to make it easier for people to act on those. It's not whether or not they have them or not. I get frustrated when I hear people talk about the gap between our values and our action, you know, because that language or that way of thinking of a gap is very behavioral economic. And I don't think that that gets us to where we need to be, which is looking more at where we people experience dilemmas and where they experience, you know, these tensions. And then anyone working in the space to solve the problems actually needs to be focusing more on how to help people navigate those tensions, which is, you know, a lot of what I'm talking about is what Project Inside Out is really about, which is looking at anxiety, looking at ambivalence, which is when you have coexisting, you know, you have conflict in yourself and where you have aspiration. I think that that those three A's can really unlock a lot of this, what you're describing as kind of contradictory behavior. Would you have certain tips to our listeners on if they feel that anxiety, if they feel if they feel that contradiction inside of themselves? Is there any direct action they, they could do right away to address those? Well, yeah, there's a few things. And again, this is also reflected on the Project Inside Out site. The first thing is to really normalize and to recognize your own experience as making sense. I also talk about that in my TED Talk. You know, it's a very important theme in the TED Talk, which is that you make sense. And the reason why that's important comes from a neuropsychologist, colleague of mine, who's also an advisor with Project Inside Out uh, named Sarah Payton. She really taught me about the power of when we tell ourselves that we make sense and when we direct compassion and empathy towards our own experience, it actually changes our brain chemistry. And we are able to access the parts of ourselves that are able to think more creatively and more strategically. So if we go around thinking, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way, or why am I thinking this? And I, I'm a terrible person and I'm a hypocrite, or I should be doing more All of that is very unproductive and it's very undermining. So it's really important that we understand our experience through the lens of compassion. It's not, I'm not just saying that to be nice. It's, it's actually helps us be more effective. And then the, the next part of that, you know, so I talk about in, in the TED talk, I talk about attunement. So you attune with yourself. And then the next part is about connecting with other people. So it's really important that we find those relationships in our life where we can be honest and open with each other about how we're actually feeling about what we're thinking about, what we want to, you know, test some ideas with thinking about doing this or thinking about doing that. So the social kind of relationship joining and being part of communities is actually extremely important. And then the third part is that we all know that action really does change our psychology. So, you know, doing whatever we can to 
to do some kind of actions in our lives and to see the action, no matter what it is, as, as medicinal, you know, whether it's me planting something or whether it's me joining a march or whether it's me writing a letter or whether I'm bringing something to my boss at work or whether I quit my job and take a new career, you know, all of that are ways that we translate our feelings into some kind of action that makes sense for us. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. One thing that has been coming up also in the past is very often this topic of visibility because sustainability or sustainable behaviors or climate change at large is a very invisible topic when it comes to also the impact that you might have. How much do you think um, that plays a role for people uh, when it comes to choosing more sustainable actions? Well, I think that's a good example of where you need to apply emotional intelligence to the way that you communicate about impact. So it's one thing to make visible what's invisible. And actually, I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, I worked with Barbara Adam for a while, the sociologist who, you know, a lot of her work was precisely about the invisibility of environmental threats and risks that they're not only invisible. There's a time space. She was a big fan of Ulrich Beck and Anthony Giddens, who talk about time space distantiation. And that's to say that a lot of these issues take place across time and space that are very hard for us to see, that are indeterminate. And so, therefore, a lot of people just assume that what we have to do is make these things more visible. So, you have to show here's the energy you're using and here's the impact you're having. And when you use this amount, you eat this burger, it's using this mm -hmm. amount of water to feed the cows. And, you know, when you use buy this article of clothing, it's actually using this amount with cotton, whatever. So, you know, that's a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the whole puzzle. And this is where using what we already know about the psychology of, how we process information has to be factored in, which mm -hmm. is that that's all emotional content. And if it's emotional, and if I get triggered emotionally by my long haul flight to the UK is producing X tons of carbon, I'm going to shut that down. I'm going to shut down my ability to actually take that in. And so you can do all the making visible you want. And you can make it really beautiful and you can make it really sexy. But unless you actually acknowledge the emotional impact of that to say, wow, like this might be overwhelming. How do you feel when you look at your footprint? You know, just something as simple as that helps people process it better. So my short answer is, yes, you want to make things more visible, But you want to be very thoughtful about the way you do that. And you want mm -hmm. to imagine that you're almost holding someone's hand and you're, you're, or you're sitting there with them. You're literally sitting with them to say, we get it. We know this is, this is hard, but we're going to get through this and we're going to get through this together. That makes total sense. And do you think like besides holding their hands, is there any other behavioral uh, insights we can, we can learn off to, kind of really trigger that climate action, that positive action towards sustainability and, and increase more action in that area? 
Well, I think what I'm saying is I'm, I'm saying that it's a combination of being in relationship and also being introduced to what the actions are, what the, um, you know, providing people with some guidance. So I don't know if you've seen Project Inside Out, but basically it's all about being a guide. And I think that guiding is a very powerful metaphor because a guide, and this comes out of the field of, in the public health sector, I'm referencing a field within public health called motivational interviewing, which is the most evidence-based field when it comes to behavior change in the clinical world. Um, and some researchers are increasingly starting to apply motivational interviewing to sustainability and climate, including, I believe, a German researcher. I need to look up his name. But there's some very innovative work coming out on that. And the essence of, of that work and behavioral change in the public health sector is that when you guide people towards action, they're much more likely to take action. But the key here is that you want to be framing it that you are, you know, you're in relationship and you are with them. So it's very, you know, and this is also in Project Inside Out, we designed these guiding principles that were drawn from our group of advisory psychologists, you know, one of whom is renowned expert in motivational interviewing, where we try to distill this into very practical principles that people can apply and they are, you know, basically the, the attuning is number one, which is tuning in to where are you at and how are you feeling and doing some checking in, but also tuning into your users and your audience and your stakeholders. There's reveal, which is telling your point, like, how do you reveal? How do you make visible and communicate what's happening in a way that's actually emotionally intelligent? And then there's equip. So giving people the resources and the tools and the information that they need to actually take action. And then convene is getting people to talk about those actions in a group setting or in a community setting. So it's not just here's this, but you're joining up with other people. And then sustain is about, you know, really always thinking beyond the immediate focus of passing a like, you know, maybe it's a policy or trying to get something done or a pledge, you know, instead of just focusing on take a pledge, you know, it's always what happens after that or making a commitment or whatever it is that you're trying to get people to do the call to action. You want to think beyond that call to action. And that's, it all loops up together, which is community is what sustains beyond the call to action they all work very synergistically together. Super interesting, really. Uh, thanks for that elaboration. One more question, maybe a bit personal. I hope that's okay. But you mentioned in the beginning that at a certain point, you stopped what you did at university in, in your PhD to really get out there and really help that climate action to happen, actually. A similar journey, maybe, Within yourself, can you elaborate a bit on that? How did that feel for you? What was your key motivator to do so? Thank you. That's a very insightful question. You know, I'm rarely asked about that, about the fact that, you know, frankly, my work is my action and it's how I've coped. So it was my coping mechanism. 
to decide to focus on environmental, to create kind of forge a field of environmental psychology and to try to do it in a very applied way. I think that for me, the first time it's a very specific experience I had where, so I did my PhD, I moved to Portland, Oregon, I had a postdoc, I was introduced to a electronics organization who was who were working on green electronics. They hired me to lead a thought session on strategy. And I brought in all my psychology and I was in a room with creative, with a creative director and with people who do copy, who write, and with people who do graphic design. And with then the policy and the kind of subject experts all in one room. And I led the session for the first time ever. And then they went off and made a whole campaign. And I was part of the campaign. I looked at the creative. And that was the moment that I thought, this is it for me. Like, there's nothing more exciting than seeing the ideas and the theory get translated into ways that I never could have imagined that it took all of us coming together to create this very compelling campaign that I, I still love to this day. It was like a tagline of like, love your computer and love the planet. You can do both, you know, and that goes back to this whole, how do we resolve these contradictions? It was almost like a, a drug, you know, I got hooked at that point. And I thought, that's it, I'm not going back. And I think that that definitely gave me a lot of reward personally that has helped me manage my own despair and my own grief around what's going on with the planet. But I still miss being an academic too. And I sometimes wish or long for more time to think and reflect that people get to have in academia. So it'd be ideal to have a combination of both, but that's what I'm trying to create in my practice is how do you do that outside of the academy in the real world, so to speak. So impressive. So you basically saw what is out there, what you could achieve, and then it was just dragging you along basically, uh, somehow, if I interpret it in my own words correctly. Yeah, but I, I just want to clarify that, you know, it's been a really rough ride. And I spent years, you know, just feeling like very unsure if this was the right path. And, off, you know, periods of time when I was really on the edge, struggling financially, you know, not sure if I could make this actually work. Because it's sort of like, how do you talk about something if it doesn't fully exist yet? You know, so <laughs> I'm just want to be clear that it wasn't like, oh, I did this and then everything took off and it was all great. It was actually really a up and down path. It's cool that you say that. It's probably a big motivation also for people out there listening because um, eventually many, many people struggle also with the same or similar feelings as you just described. Yeah. yeah, it's also probably just things you have to deal with if you pioneer in your fields like you were uh, doing. 
I think you mentioned innovation quite a few times, and I think we would love to touch also on that topic with you very shortly. What do you think are innovations out there, innovations that you see you know, coming up and on the horizon that really excite you, hmm. where you see a lot of hope and opportunities when it comes to dealing uh, with uh, the climate challenges at place? Well, I think this the work of climate psychology is a form of innovation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because you're bringing some things together that haven't been brought together before in new ways and it's forcing you to create something new. So I like to frame this work itself as innovative. And then there's, you know, the kinds of projects that excite me are ones that connect, you know, like an app for example, that is very user-centered and very emotionally intelligent. So for example, I worked on a game and this game was, it's called the Internet of Elephants. Actually, that's the organization that created the game. The game is called Wild Diverse, W-I-L-D-E-V-E-R-S-E. And that was exciting because it was a conservation game. And I partnered with the team, with the developers to design a narrative and a way of engaging the player, the user, to go on a journey that was really focusing on wildlife and particularly orangutan and Borneo, which is not a good story. So they were wanting to figure out how to create a game that doesn't either overwhelm, you know, depress people, but also doesn't overlook that's also uh, inspiring and so anything that kind of brings that together through uh, creative ways using storytelling you know I think story the whole you know emphasis on personal story and first person story is really where the action is right now you know that we need to be more vulnerable we need to be more open and human about where we are so any kind of app or platform that does that, I find very, very interesting. Could you elaborate that a little more with the storytelling? Well, so I think that what we, what we found in our work with Project Inside Out, we did a pilot program with uh, an organization about air travel. And it looked, it, it allowed people to talk openly about their relationship with air travel. One of the things we did is we used storytelling in a very particular way where we had, we featured people's story, different people's stories, but they were kind of like what I just did here. They were not just, oh, I did this and now everything's great. They were, well, I realized I wanted to live more in alignment with my values. So then I chose to, you know, not fly as much, but then I had these issues with my family and we had to have a lot of conversations about how we were going to function as a family if we didn't fly as much. And then, you know, one person said they were a climate scientist with the IPCC. He, he lost, you know, he stopped flying internationally and had to change entire careers. And so that kind of storytelling where people, where you include ways of hearing, you know, this is my journey, this is my experience that actually helps everyone with their journey and their experience. So in the, with the game I mentioned, they created these personas of people living in the book in the forest with the um, based on real people based on real researchers living in the forest who are working to protect the orangutan and they had their more their stories 
they use the story as a way of engaging the user in the experience. So, you know, there's lots of ways of using narrative and storytelling. So thank you so much for that explanation. I think we are already pretty far regarding the time. I would have one last question. Like if you would tell our listeners three little things they could do today, what would that be? So one would be to sit by yourself for ideally outside in a park or somewhere, but sit and just be with your own experience and check in with yourself and notice how you're feeling without any judgment or evaluation about it. So that's just be with yourself. That's number one. And then number two would be to reach out and talk to someone else and to initiate having a conversation about how you feel about climate change or environment or whatever, but to do it in a way that's really coming from your own experience and how you're feeling and express curiosity and interest in what they're feeling and what their experience is. So you're not trying to change someone or persuade them, but you really have an open conversation that's very reflective. That's a radical act. That's a very powerful thing that if many of us were doing, we would see a lot of change happen. It's a, it's a very powerful thing to do. And then third thing would be, you know, to think about and reflect on what do you feel is your unique contribution to make and to think about very broadly. So whether, you know, depending on your personality and your interests and your skills, to think about what is my unique contribution and to make a commitment to yourself that you are going to continue to develop yourself to be a better practitioner and person, you know, who can bring that unique offering it really into life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing these three uh, ways. I hope, yeah, found a lot of practical uh, value in, in that. Yeah, thank you so much, Renee. We also want to respect your time. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing all these insights. Thank you. It's really lovely speaking with both of you. And I wish you so much good luck and best wishes on your own innovation and your project. Thank Thanks, so a Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.